Well, this morning it is uh, my privilege to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning. Uh, Reverend Todd Pruitt is the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg. Uh, you probably figured that out by our prayer this morning. Um, Todd has pastored for a while. He's been at uh, Covenant Pres for 10 years, and uh, uh, he is uh, online. He co-hosts a podcast with Carl Truman called Mortification of Spin, and I encourage that uh, for you to see that, and uh, he writes regularly, uh, is uh, married and has three grown children, and uh, I've put here an internet-loving dog named Jake, and I, I said that because I see more pictures of Jake than I see of Todd, um, and I don't think that's by accident, but please, uh, would you welcome Todd Pruitt. Well, I bring you greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ at Covenant Presbyterian Church in the Shenandoah Valley. It is a privilege to be with you today. I've gotten to spend the weekend with uh, your deacons and your session, and that was a blessing to me. I can tell you after a couple of days with those brothers that uh, you are served by men who love the Lord and who love this church, and that is a blessing. Um, I want to give you a little bit of a warning before I begin uh, that I'm going to make use of this. I brought this from home because I never preach without this because you're going to witness me uh, perspiring up here as I preach. And the reason I point that out is that it could get fairly alarming at some point. And I want you to know that you are not witnessing a medical emergency. No one needs to call anyone. I am fine. This is just an affliction and um, I'm happy to bear it. Uh, so I just want you to know that that's what's happening. Um, well, if you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 7. The Gospel of John chapter 7. Uh, I have been preaching through this wonderful portion of God's Word um, to, uh, to my own congregation, and just a couple of weeks ago I, I preached this passage so we can say that I practiced it on them and I'm now finally ready to preach it for you all today. John chapter 7, and we're going to look just at a couple of verses verses 37 through 39 of the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And before I read it, I, I, I want to remind us all uh, that this is God's Word. Um, it is His holy, inspired, life-giving Word to us. Every part of it is true. Every bit of it is true. It is living and active, and by it, God will mysteriously and powerfully work in us today. And so look there with me, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now our Father and our God, we ask that by your grace, you would use your word to speak to us, O Lord. And we pray with our Lord Jesus, sanctify us by your truth. Your word, O oh Lord, is truth. 
Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, about 10 years ago, there was a really terrific uh, commercial. It was a Dodge Ram truck commercial. It aired um, for the first time on the Super Bowl about 10 years ago. And in it, you see these great scenes of farmers doing their work. And behind it all is playing this old kind of scratchy audio from Paul Harvey. And you see all of these pastoral scenes. You see scenes where there's dirt and dust flying up, and in the middle of it is a farmer. You see scenes of great green fields, and in the middle of it, plowing those fields is a farmer. You see cattle roaming around and, and herding them as a farmer. And all the while, you hear the voice of Paul Harvey talking about a farmer. You know, how great this work is, how hard this work is, how rewarding and important that work is. And, and by the time the commercial is over, you want to be a farmer. Whatever it is you do or are good at, you want to put on some boots, get dirty, get out in the field, plow some fields, you know, deliver a calf. Well, not deliver a calf, but you want to do all of the other things. You want to do those things. And, and the high point of the commercial, I think, the, the emotional high point of the commercial is that bit of narration where Paul Harvey says, on the eighth day, God made a farmer. Oh, yes, yes. That's a great commercial, and I can't help but wonder if the writers of that ad had any idea how old the idea of the eighth day really was. In the fifth century, the great theologian Augustine called the Christian Sabbath the eighth day. The day signaling that great eternal rest, that great eternal day that would ne never end and for the people of God would be lived out in the Blessed, saving presence of God, the eighth day. Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, the day after the seventh day, kind of like the eighth day. The scene that John describes for us here, beginning in verse 37, is loaded with significance, both ceremonial and religious and historical, and it's happening on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day. Now chapter 7 of John uh, orbits around the Feast of Tabernacles. The beginning of the feast is identified. The middle of the feast is identified. And right here in verse 37, the final day, the eighth day, what John calls the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles is identified. And it was one of the three dates that were central to the Jewish calendar, one of the three great religious feasts of God's people, right along with Passover and Pentecost. And it took place in the autumn, and it had two major functions. One was agricultural. The people depended on the harvest every year. They depended on rains at certain times of year so that there would be a successful and fruitful harvest. And so the Feast of Tabernacles came along at harvest season as a means for the people to give thanks to God for a successful harvest. That's the agricultural part. But there was, of course, a, a very religious significance to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was meant to commemorate the powerful ways that God had been present with his people in the past, specifically during their 40 years of Exodus, how God had guided them with his powerful presence, how he had spoken to them through the mediator Moses, how they had seen the presence of the Lord descend upon that tent of meeting where Moses would meet with God with a veiled face, 
where once they had constructed by God's, by God's instructions the tabernacle, God would literally dwell with his people in that most holy place. A, a, a kind of experience they had not had in many, many generations. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a way for them to give thanks for the ways that God had been powerfully present with them. And it was also an enacted prayer, if you like, that God would once again restore his powerful and active presence among his people. Now, the way in which the days of the Feast of Tabernacles was counted was fairly peculiar. Because think about the way that we count or, or measure time. Think about the ways that we experience the passage of moments. Since the creation, mankind has counted time in part by the passage of seven-day weeks. And it is still the case all the way around the world. We have these seven-day weeks. And watch this. There's nothing about the earth's revolution around the sun, and there's nothing about the, the moon's revolution around the earth that requires a seven-day week. The seven-day week is the one uh, measure of, of counting time that was given to us by God directly that doesn't depend on anything else outside of his own commandment. I mean, look at what we're doing. We are here on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And, and you know, Dave mentioned it earlier as he was praying, is that, you know, there, there are few things anymore that are more countercultural than people getting up on a Sunday morning and getting themselves together and coming to a place to worship with other Christians. Now, that used to be rather normal. Today, it's odd, it's weird. It gives public testimony, among other things, that we as a peculiar people measure time by God's accounting. That we count this day as something very special. Why? Because God made it very special. It's not that the other days aren't special. It means that this day is set apart as holy by God's own design. We live, as it were, in light of God's calendar. And the eighth day has some significance there. Because the eighth day does not fit in. If we started all of the sudden measuring weeks by eight days, it would mess everything else up, right? It would mess up your job. It would mess up your appointments. It would mess up everything else you do because an eight-day week does not fit in this fallen world. Seven-day week does by God's own command. An eight-day week doesn't fit in a fallen world, but it will make absolute sense in the world to come. Because there we will live in that eighth day, that everlasting day. Well, all told, the Feast of Tabernacles lasted eight days, and very intentionally at that. One commentator writes, quote, The final day, the eighth day, was the climactic day of the feast, and would have been viewed as such by all in attendance. Now, in terms of the liturgy for the Feast of Tabernacles, it incorporated both fire and water. At night, the city was set alight by bonfires that would be lit all around the city, both within the city and in the surrounding region, especially within the city around the temple. And you can perhaps in your mind's eye see what that would have looked like at night. No ambient light from great cities or anything like that but just the, the darkness cut through with these 
bonfires lit around the temple courts, that fire reflecting off of those stone walls. It would have been a brilliant thing to see, and you could have seen it for miles around. Those fires, those bonfires every night, reminding the people of how God had guided them in the desert, in the exodus, by his own pillar of fire. Water was also incorporated. Water was a very important element of the liturgy of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, one of the priests would, would, would carry a pitcher filled with water and would lead a procession of the people through the city to the temple every day where he would pour that water out upon the stone temple. And imagine the significance of that. Just as God had, had provided water for the people from the stone in the desert, so now the priest pours out from that golden jar water upon the stone altar as though calling upon the Lord to once again, as it were, provide living water for the people. During the procession, a choir would chant the words of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the procession of people led by the priests through the city would carry branches of various trees in their hands. In one hand, they would carry uh, the branch of a citrus tree that was there to symbolize uh, the abundance of blessing uh, in the land of promise. In the other hand, they would carry a branch of a willow tree and a, and a myrtle tree and a palm tree, symbolizing the various stages of the Exodus wanderings. And as they followed the priests in great solemnity and joy, they would be singing Psalms 113 through 118. The feast also anticipated um, the eschaton. It was eschatological, that is, it was oriented toward the day to come. It was oriented towards God's great and everlasting and eternal reign. And so there was a, a joyfulness to the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, historians tell us that among the three major feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles was probably the one that was accompanied by the most visible joy on the part of the people. This is why some of the great theologians of the early church wrote and preached about this so-called eighth day, a day of everlasting joy in the blessed presence of God. And it's rooted here in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, in the midst of all of this solemnity, in the midst of all of this joy, in the midst of all of this ceremony, Jesus does something truly audacious. The event recorded here by John, again, on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and as this huge throng of people have been led in procession through the city to the temple, the priest now ascends the steps to the altar platform with that golden jug filled with water. He circles the altar seven times. And there, a reverent hush falls over the crowds as each person strains to see the drama that is going on around the altar. 
All of the people have come here. Thousands have come from well outside of Jerusalem, perhaps even in the regions of the diaspora. They are there for this moment, the last and greatest day, the high point of the entire Feast of Tabernacles, their most joyous celebration, and now this holy hush over the crowd of thousands. They are all there to see this moment, the priest finally, at the last and greatest moment, pouring out the water upon the stone altar. The symbolism is deep. People are called to remember the days of old when God had been with them, powerfully present, guiding them, speaking to them. And right then in the middle of the solemn ceremony, Jesus stands and, as John tells us, he cries out, Jesus is not there to whisper. Jesus is not there to give good advice. Jesus is not there to offer one potential option. Jesus cries out with the voice of a prophet, indeed, the prophet, and he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. Now, there is no way for us to grasp the audacity of that moment. There is no way for us to exaggerate the scandal of that moment. Jesus was declaring right there at the highest point of their festival, Jesus was declaring this about himself. All of your ceremonies, which by the way were prescribed by God for a very specific reason, so he's not disrespecting the ceremony. It was given by God. But he is saying this, all of your ceremony, all of your religion, all of your priests and priestcraft, indeed, even the temple itself, all of your sacrifices, the stone altar, all of it terminates on me. I am the point. The substance is here. The shadows, time has passed. So if you're thirsty, Jesus said, meaning if you've come to the knowledge that you are a sinner, if you've come to realize that you need a pardon from your sin and a hope that endures, if you know this, then come to me. From this point on, if you continue to look to these ceremonies, which were always intended to be temporary, from this point on, you'll be looking in the wrong place. But the people couldn't see it. Now, I'm told this actually happened. And the reason why I give that proviso is in case it didn't actually happen, then you can know I have a way out. But I'm told this happened. I hope it happened. If it didn't happen, it should have happened. It was the early 1950s. A city bus in Detroit was making its stops. And in that bus was an African-American man sitting alone, And during his trip through the city, three boys began to taunt him and to hurl racial epithets at him. And this goes on and on, and yet the man keeps his calm, seemingly unmoved by those insults. Doesn't look upon them, he doesn't seem to raise an eyebrow, he seems not to be offended at all. And then it comes to his stop. And without a word... As the man got up, first of all, the boys realized he was much larger than he first appeared. He does one thing without a word. He reaches into his jacket and gets out a business card. 
and he hands the business card to the three boys. And on the business card were just three words embossed. Joe Lewis, boxer. You see, the irony of that moment was that the boys had no idea who they were talking to. They had no idea who they were insulting. They had no idea that they were in the presence of greatness. It's said that Joe Lewis could knock out a horse with one punch. I don't know how you come to that conclusion unless you actually do that. Nevertheless, the man is one of the greatest boxers in the history of the game. and There they were, and they had no idea. Let me ask you this. If you had been with Joe Lewis that day, let's say you'd been his manager, and you had witnessed those three boys and heard their words taunting him, would you have said something? Let me help you out. You would have said something. You would have. For one reason, to save the lives of the boys, right? But the other reason you would have said something is you would have wanted them to know whose presence they were in. You would have wanted to say, hey boys, let me interrupt you for a minute. Do you know who this is? Do you know what he has done in the ring? Do you know the damage he has inflicted on so many men in the ring? Do you know who this is? You see, you would have spoken up. I would have spoken up. For the sheer joy of making his glory known. And here Jesus was in the temple that day, speaking up for himself, and they couldn't see it. On that eighth day of the feast, all eyes are on Jesus, but they're blind, they couldn't see. And what we find out from the rest of chapter 7 is that they really do miss it. A few of the people come close. Some of them start to speculate. Well, maybe he's the great prophet that that we hear about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Or or, or maybe he's the next king that we're going to get in the line of David. They were getting close, but close is not far enough. We may think that we can flatter Jesus by saying he's a good man. Or he was a great prophet. Or he should have been crowned king. We we might think that we can flatter Jesus, but so long as we withhold from him, my Lord and my God, then we haven't gone far enough. Others in the crowd that day wanted to see him arrested. Of course, the religious authorities at that point, in fact, ever since Jesus had healed the, 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 the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, they had been plotting to kill him, and so there was murderous rage among many others. None of them could see. None of them could see whose presence they were in. None of them could see and understand whose voice they had just heard. And look again what Jesus says in verse 37, because what Jesus is doing here is he is identifying a very deep ache in the human soul. What does he say? If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts. Now, when Jesus mentions thirst here, he's not referring to a physical need for for liquid refreshment. He's referring to that deep ache in the soul something that we all bear, something that we know. It's the knowledge that something is wrong. And let me tell you something. Every unbelieving friend and acquaintance you have has the ache. 
They may not admit it. They may not want to talk about it. But every single lost person you know, every single unbeliever you know, has the ache. They know something's not wrong. I read somewhere that Charles Spurgeon called thirst the absence of a necessary. The absence of a necessary. That's good, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is talking about here, is that we carry around in us, outside of Christ, we carry around in us the absence of a necessary, a deep, unsatisfied ache. It's a warning that something essential is missing. And it is this deep ache, this unfulfilled absence that is behind so many sinful and destructive patterns in our lives. Why do we return so often to things that we know will cause pain? Why do we return so often to the things that didn't fill us up last time? Why do we return so often to the things that harm our lives and harm the people who love us? Why do we do that? Why do we keep going after empty wells that hold no water? Why would someone risk their marriage? Why would someone risk their relationship with their parents or their children for something sinful? Well, there's a number of different ways we can answer that. But isn't it at least in part because we're trying to fill something that's empty? And I don't want you to hear that as something merely therapeutic. It's sin. It's a violation of God's good law. It's a deliberate departure from God's way. The prophet Jeremiah, rebuking God's people at one point, he cries out to heaven, be appalled at this, O heavens. Be be appalled at this, O Lord. And we're bracing ourselves thinking, wow, what have the people done? For the prophet to say, this is the sin that appalls all of heaven. We're thinking he's about ready to hit us with some gross, immoral stuff. Things that we have to, you know, kind of excuse everybody under 12 out of the room. Do you know what Jeremiah says? Be appalled at this. This This is the sin that appalls all of heaven. He says this, your people have forsaken the fountain of living waters. And have instead dug out for themselves waters that can hold nothing. Waters that are broken. Wells that are broken. That's the sin that appalls all of heaven. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And this is what is getting, being gotten at there. Every time we go digging for water in empty, broken wells, ignoring the fountain of living waters. It's a grievous sin, but you know what? It's also tragic. It's tragic because the fountain of living waters is right there. In his book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer's compelling account, I would encourage you to read it if you ever get a chance, his compelling account of the deadliest day in Mount Everest's history. It happened in 1996. Fifteen climbers lost their lives that day. And one of those who lost his life was the leader of one of the expeditions, a man named Andy Harris. And Harris stayed at the summit beyond the deadline as this massive storm was closing in on the summit of Everest. They said it was a hurricane on top of the mountain. And Harris had stayed up there too long in an effort to try to get some of his well-paying clients to the summit. But he was there too long. And on his descent, 
Harris ran out of oxygen in his oxygen tank. Now, you have to understand, oxygen tanks are necessary at that altitude to keep the brain functioning properly. At that altitude, climbers call it the death zone because your brain immediately starts to eat itself. And so he radioed his predicament to the base camp. I'm out of oxygen. I'm up too high. And he mentioned that he had come across this cache of oxygen tanks that were deposited at various places along the route to the summit. And he'd come upon this cache of of, of oxygen canisters that had been left behind, but he said they're all empty. Now, here's the trick. Those who had just passed by him an hour earlier knew that those oxygen tanks had just been left there and they were full of oxygen. So they pleaded with Harris over the radio, Those oxygen tanks are full. Get hooked up to one of them. Get some oxygen in your system. Your your brain is lying to you at this point. But by this time, his brain had already been starved of so much oxygen that he continued to argue that the canisters were empty, even though the registers said they were full. And ultimately, he lay down there on the frozen ground and died. Because you see, the lack of what he needed so disoriented him That though he was surrounded by a ready supply of what he needed to live, he could not accept the fact that life was right in front of him. It's an almost perfect picture of the world around us in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great J.C. Ryle, commenting on this very passage, writes this, quote, Sinful, mortal, dying creatures as we all are with souls that will one day be judged and spend eternity in heaven or hell. There lives not the man or woman on earth who ought not to thirst after salvation. And yet the many thirst after everything almost except salvation. Money, pleasure, honor, rank, and self-indulgence. These are the things which they desire. There is no clearer proof of the fall of man and the utter corruption of human nature than the careless indifference of most people about their souls. But in the face of this ache, Jesus makes a bold claim. Look again, verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. On the final day of the feast one involving the repeated ritual of pouring water, Jesus makes that claim. In fact, it is a plea. He is, John tells us, crying out. He's lifting up a loud voice. He's speaking as one with authority. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And notice how John, or that is, notice how Jesus legitimizes the thirst that is present in the human soul. He does not rebuke his hearers for their thirst. He does not say, if anyone is thirsty, shame on you. He he, he does not say, if anyone is thirsty, then just try harder. He doesn't command them to adopt an attitude of asceticism. If anyone is thirsty, then just deal with it. You shouldn't be thirsty anyway. Rather, he invites the thirsty to come to him and drink until they are satisfied. Jesus is the fountain of living waters. Here again, J.C. Ryle, I love this. He says, the reliever of man's spiritual wants, the giver of satisfaction to weary consciences, the remover and pardoner of sins. He recommends all who feel their sins and want pardon to come to him 
and he promises that they shall at once get what they want. That's the freedom of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That one simple, tiny act of faith that says, let me drink, will at once be satisfied. There's a wonderful scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's found in the book, The Silver Chair, and it illustrates, I think, rather well what's being gotten at here. Lewis describes the character Jill seeing a a lion at one point, and of course she's frightened and she runs into the forest. And she runs so fast and so hard and so long that she gets to the place of exhaustion and, and terrible thirst. And then she hears the running of a stream, that bubbling, wonderful sound. And just as the stream comes into her view, something terrifying happens. Between her and the stream stands the lion. And then the lion speaks. And here's how Lewis writes it. Are you thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. And said the lion, I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she came a step closer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as though it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. To which the lion replied, there is no other stream. Lewis writes, it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. It's a brilliant picture of what Jesus said on that last and greatest day of the feast. There is no other stream. Come to me and drink. I love that bit about Jill saying, do you promise not to do anything to me? No, came the answer. Because you see, our sin is not safe in the hands of the lion. Our mixed up priorities, our bitterness, our lust, our coveting, none of it is safe with Jesus. So don't expect to come to Jesus and remain untouched, unchallenged, unchanged. He's going to do something to you, yes. Don't come to Jesus and expect to continue to hold on comfortably to your sin. Jesus is going to do something to you. Don't expect Jesus to save you, but to leave you 
comfortable in your worldliness, Jesus is going to do something to you. You don't come to Jesus, the lion. You don't come to him, the king, and say, now you're not going to do anything to me, are you? You're not going to change me, are you? You're not going to do things like change my habits or require me to love an enemy or take up a cross, are you? But look at what happens. What happens to all those who come to Jesus and drink? To them he makes this gracious promise. Do you see it there in verse 38? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit. Jesus is describing the work of the Holy Spirit. And once again, John draws our attention to the necessity of belief in Jesus, whoever believes in me. If you go through the Gospel of John over and over and over again, Jesus makes everything hinge on this. You must believe in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. Every religion that the world will offer you will say, do this and live. Perfect these spiritual practices and live. Obey these five laws and live. Go through this process and live. Only Christianity, with all of the moral genius of God, says none of that can save you. What you need is grace. Believe and live. And this is what Jesus is telling us. This is the promise. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. That's what he promised the Samaritan woman. He also said to her, that water that I give you will become like a fountain in you, flowing out. You see, the Bible is filled with references to water and rivers and streams and fountains as symbols of God's grace and his blessing. Listen to this from Isaiah 58. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The godly man of Psalm chapter 1 is like a tree planted by streams of water. In the Old and New Testaments, there are references to a river flowing out of the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 46 begins with these words, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we do not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains quake at their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, here's the catch. There is no river that runs through Jerusalem. There is no stream that runs through Jerusalem. That river is the living, saving presence of God. In the Apostle John's vision of the new creation to come that's recorded in the book of Revelation, he sees a river flowing from the throne of God through the city for the blessing of all the nations. The life Jesus gives becomes in us like a river which flows out of us, a source of blessing to others, and this is the work of the Spirit of God himself. You know, there are two inland bodies of water near Jerusalem, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee to this day is teeming with life. It is a vital source of both water and food for the people of that region, as it always has been. The Dead Sea 
is very appropriately named because it is so contaminated with such high levels of salt and minerals that it can't sustain life. It is the Dead Sea. And here's the difference between the two bodies of water. The living Sea of Galilee has a river that runs into it and a river that flows out of it. The Dead Sea, on the other hand, has only a river that runs into it. And so the Dead Sea can only collect water and keep it. That means there the water stagnates and becomes poison. The Sea of Galilee has a river that flows out of it. That means the Sea of Galilee is losing water every second of every day. And yet it remains filled and teeming with life. Be like that, Christian. We don't have to worry about running dry. The Holy Spirit has an unending supply of life to give us in Christ that will become like a river flowing out of us. That's how deep and everlasting are the reservoirs of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So Christian, bless away. Just bless away. There is a river of life in you from Christ the Lord. Well, in Leviticus 23 and in Numbers 29, we see prescriptions for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in those passages, an eighth day of the celebration was prescribed. It's a weird thing, this concept of an eight-day week. It doesn't work in our world. The eighth day will only work in the new world, the new creation. And that's what Jesus has accomplished in his dying and rising that eighth everlasting day in his blessed presence for all who believe without exception. Isn't it true that in your happiest moments, there's a voice inside of you that says, oh, I wish this could go on forever? Well, it will, but it will be in that eighth and eternal Sabbath. And it just so happens that you will be happier there and then than you can even dare to imagine now. The reason why everybody around the world throughout all generations from primitive cultures to the most uh, contemporary and sophisticated cultures, the reason why everybody dreams about and longs for a better world is because there is one. Because God gave us a longing for it. Why would someone in sub-Saharan Africa or in New Guinea or in Manhattan, all have the same longing because God put it there. The Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder to the Israelites of God's coming and dwelling with them in the wilderness. What does John tell us in his prologue in chapter 1 and verse 14? The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. The purpose of Jesus' coming, the purpose of the incarnation was to restore the lost presence of God to God's people, specifically to save them from their sin. And for that to happen, Jesus had to die as our sin-removing substitutionary sacrifice, our atonement. And our sins had to be atoned for. And God's justice had to be satisfied. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the moral genius of God. What God required, God gave. What God demanded, God supplied. That's why Jesus came. That's why he stood up on the eighth day of the feast and said, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Calvin writes this, quote, The invitation was not addressed to one or two persons only, or in a low and gentle whisper. But this doctrine is proclaimed to all in such a manner that none may ignore it. It's not a low and gentle whisper. It is the booming voice of your Savior. Come to him and drink. So if you're thirsty, come. If your life is unsatisfied, come. If you feel the weight of your fallenness, if you feel the guilt of your sin, come to Christ. Drink and be saved. Let's pray. And now our Father and our God, we ask that your word would not depart from us, but would produce fruit in us. Would you grant, Lord, faith in the heart of the skeptic? Would you grant hope in the heart of the despairing? Would you grant strength in the heart of the weary? And for us all, Lord, without exception, let us look to you for our salvation. And this we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.